Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 17. The night of the 27th of May 1982 was cold and rainy and waiting for the British on the mile-wide isthmus to the north of the settlements of Darwin and Goose Green were 100 Argentinian conscripts making up two platoons of 12 Regiment, A Company. A dozen or so Argentinian reconnaissance soldiers joined them along with First Lieutenant Jorge Manresa, three other officers and 14 NCOs. Manresa's men weren't in a good place. They were part of the extension of a defensive position ordered by their commander back in Stanley, and it was nowhere nearly as well laid out as the second line of defense behind them. They had a 120mm mortar with its tube welded to its base plate, two other 81mm mortars and two 7.62mm machine guns. The newly dug positions were about a mile and a half ahead of the much better constructed main line. At 6pm on the 27th, the British 2nd Battalion Charlie Company began to advance towards the start line in intermittent rain. For the next three hours, they probed down the track led by engineers of 59 Squadron, who faced the biggest hazards initially, being blown up by mines or booby traps. They waded waist-deep in streams in the darkness to ensure that the three bridges between Camilla Creek and the start line were clear of mines, then lay shivering in the dark as the assault companies headed their way. At 2.35 a.m., Alpha Company crossed the start line in a classic infantry formation, two platoons forward, one behind. Also at 2.35, HMS Arrow opened fire and fired a total of 22 star shells and then 135 rounds of 4.5-inch high-explosive shells during a 90-minute bombardment, signaling the start of the attack. The rest of the battalion moved off, listening to the crump-crump of naval gunfire support. Dare Farrah Hockley's two para-alpha company men advanced rapidly and silently to their first objective, Burnside House, which lay on the east side of the Isthmus. They had no idea that the Argentinians had evacuated the building, leaving behind four terrified civilians who were going to bear the brunt of the attack. The Argentinians behind the house, part of the 12th Regiment, opened fire when they heard the paras, who were now 500 yards short of the building, and the paras responded mainly with machine gun fire, peppering the area to the south and Burnside House itself. Later, the paras said when they entered the house, there were two dead Argentinians inside, along with four kelpers, but Manresa disputes that story, saying there were only the four Kelpers and no Argentinians. As the British advanced, many of these 12th Regiment conscripts basically gave up. Some curled up inside their foxholes, refusing to fire. They were just like little children, said one of the para-officers later. Bravo Company was meeting constant opposition, though, and by 5.30, Alpha Company had advanced to its second objective, Coronation Point, which overlooked Darwin. There, Farrah Hockley reported to H, Lieutenant Colonel Jones, and asked for permission to press on. Jones was a few hundred yards behind the action on the track running down the central spine of the Isthmus, and was surprised by the request. For some reason, he didn't immediately respond, although the darkness was ebbing away. Half an hour later, as Alpha Company waited in the freezing rain, H joined the men so he could make a decision based on first-person experience. This delay was going to cost the British not least Jones himself. Then some of the Argentinians, who had been bypassed unseen in the dark, began firing at Bravo Company, so two para-Delta Company coming up behind had to take out these positions one by one, slowing the attack further. 
Still, it took a firefight until first light before the first line was broken, and the British were still two miles short of the Goose Green settlement. They had just arrived at Darwin. But that is further north of Goose Green, about a mile and a half away, and both were located on the east side of the isthmus, the right as you look at the map. Then dawn broke, and the battle began to swing away from the British. They were caught in the open on gently sloping ground, with the only shelter being little contours in the landscape and a ridge that was a great target. And the enemy they faced were not in little foxholes dug quickly over the previous few days, but a line of defence constructed over weeks. Intelligence had reported that the Argentine positions lacked overhead protection and that the soldiers were demotivated. British intelligence had got a few things hopelessly wrong. There were far more Argentinians defending Goose Green than they thought, and most were well dug in and motivated. They had overhead protection in the form of bunkers and deep trenches with covering. Furthermore, two fresh platoons of Argentinian troops had just arrived from the rear on their left. Number 3 platoon of Charlie Company 8th Regiment was waiting, led by a particularly effective officer called 2nd Lieutenant Guillermo Aliaga. The morale of his men was good, and they took up positions and trenches near the tumbled ruins of a long-abandoned building called Boca House. This was a building right up against the Sound, on the beach almost, and they were going to cause the British problems. Another Argentinian platoon of Charlie Company 25th Regiment had made it to the trenches and bunkers on the right of the Isthmus, directly in Bravo Company's way to the northwest of Darwin. Lieutenant Roberto Estevez led this platoon, and he immediately responded to orders from Lieutenant Colonel Piaggi to try and relieve the pressure on the conscripts further north, who were wilting under two paras attack. Estevez had been based near the airfield about a mile away and rushed up the slope to the trenches with his 100 men, who were the most effective platoon of the three manning this main line of defence. They had a full complement of mortars and machine guns, and Estevez was a highly experienced officer. Old and wise, say his men. Before Estevez could launch his attack, the British hove into view. All this rubbish about them not wanting to fight, said Major Chris Keeble of two paralator. They were fighting hard. Worse, an astonishingly heavy artillery and mortar barrage now began, as the Argentinian spotters could see properly despite the early morning mist. Alpha Company began to move on the open ground. They left three platoon covering the enemy positions at Darwin. They were trying to head past the settlement to its west, or to the left, if you're looking north. The fighting which now broke out was fierce and bloody. Two platoon was in the lead, and found they could dive into the gorse for shelter, Fortunately for them, a particularly thick patch was located at their position, but one platoon was in real trouble, with Corporal Malia of the engineers dying instantly. A massive volume of medium machine gun fire was unleashed on the British from about 400 metres away, and the light was improving rapidly. The Argentinians said later that the paras were moving as if they had secured the area, swiftly but exposed. A strange event took place, which Estevez saw firsthand, but the British reports didn't really cover this. As they walked towards the main line of Argentinians, they were waved on by the enemy, who actually thought they were part of the conscripts of the 12th fleeing the British. You can imagine how this mistake was made, but in an instant the Argentinians realized that the men now heading their way were British paratroopers. Estevez's men said afterwards that the Paris mistook them for kelpers on the ridge, waving them onwards towards the slight rise, that's why the first fusillade 
of machine gun fire caused so many casualties. The paras stopped and dropped. They had no protection and hugged the gorse and burrowed into little hillocks. They retreated over the next 45 minutes, extricating themselves with smoke and fire and movement action. Alpha Company took stock. They realized there were at least 100 Argentinians facing them, including a substantial number of snipers and machine gun nests. Worse for Alpha and Bravo, the Paras were running short of ammunition. Farrell Hockley then tried to move one platoon into a flanking position, but the Argentinians were expecting this. Private Tuffin was hit in the head and then kept conscious by his brothers-in-arms over the next four and a half hours in case he slipped into a coma. Private Worrell was hit and dropped. Corporals Abels and Pryor ran out to drag him into cover, but Pryor was wounded on the way back. Another Corporal Hardman ran out to join Abels and helped drag Worrell within a few feet of safety when he too was hit in the head and killed outright. The courage of these men in action was extraordinary. There was now somewhat of a lull in battle as both sides took stock. Lieutenant Colonel Piaggi radioed Brigadier General Parada back at Stanley and asked for air support. Three Pukaras made the first raid at around 8.30 and their first rocket attack missed, being lucky in turn to avoid being downed by blowpipe missiles and ground fire from the British. John Crosland of 2 Para Regiment Bravo Company said later that Up to first light we were definitely winning. After first light it was dawning on people that we were doing the groveling. The appearance of the Pukaras had unnerved the Navy and HMS Arrow was compelled to retire there would be no more naval gunfire support for two para. So by 8.30 things were untenable. None of the rifle companies had broken through the Argentinian deadlock. Men lay or crouched the length of the isthmus, picking up ammunition from their own dead and wounded. In C Company, some began to brew tea, even as the mortars dropped around them. Colonel H lay beside Dare Farrah Hockley and said that they had to take the ridge. Farrah Hockley duly began to move forward with 16 men, including his 2IC Chris Dent. Battalion adjutant David Wood decided on his own volition to follow, which was a big mistake. As they started up the hill, Dent was shot and killed. Corporal Hardman and Captain Wood died shortly afterwards. Lance Corporal Toole, who was lying near Farrah Hockley, said, Sir, if you don't get out of here now, you aren't going to. Things were going to get far worse. As the survivors crawled back, they heard that Colonel Jones had decided to take out the machine gun nest himself. He clutched his Sterling submachine gun, followed by Sergeant Norman and Lance Corporal Beresford, and ran around the hill from the other side. Then, in a moment of what could only be called madness, he stood up and dashed up a gully towards the machine gun. He was shot in the back of the neck, possibly by a sniper, and fell mortally wounded. In a few minutes, the Battle of Darwin Hill had taken the lives of the commanding officer, Colonel Jones, Captain Dent, the adjutant David Wood, and nine other men. Things on the other side weren't going swimmingly either. A British anti-tank Milan missile went through one of the firing sits of a trench near Estevez and the 25th Regiment platoon who were still fighting for all they were worth. Estevez was wounded three times in the leg, the left arm, and finally his eye, and he bled to death. Estevez was the only Argentine officer killed during the Battle of Goose Green in Darwin and received a posthumous award for his bravery. Farrah Hockley finally took the hill along with 76 Argentinian prisoners and 39 of these were wounded. Then another unnecessary action took place. It was clear that Jones was fatally wounded 
but a medical support chopper was called in nevertheless to try and pick him up. A scout Kazavak chopper headed out from San Carlos to Darwin, but the Pokaras were still hunting for prey. One of the enemy aircraft dived and hit the scout with cannon fire and it crashed. Lieutenant Richard Nunn was killed. A second crew member lost a leg. The British momentum slowed to a crawl. Some of the para-regiment had discarded their submachine guns and had picked up Argentinian FNs with a much higher hitting power and range and they also had access to hundreds of rounds of ammunition. The British began to shuttle ammo from San Carlos but someone had to try and carry it forward to the rifle companies as others Kazavak the wounded. Alpha Company was suffering in the east but in the west of the isthmus Bravo Company had just begun a long and bitter battle to reach the Argentinian positions behind the ruins of Boca House. While the trenches had been constructed to face the sea, they proved to be formidable against a land attack as well. In response, Bravo's two lead platoons splintered into smaller and smaller groups, sometimes two men together. One would move forward with 66mm anti-tank rockets or grenades, while his partner covered him with a machine gun. It was now that the grit of the British soldier and their capacity to innovate in the middle of a battle came to bear. Ian Aird was a 30-year-old platoon sergeant from Yorkshire who had been in the regiment for 11 years. He found that using Milan anti-tank rockets against the trenches, he could advance rapidly. Sergeant Aird also lobbed phosphorus grenades intermittently. As he and his colleagues moved down the isthmus, they realized that these two armaments were working well. When the anti-tank rocket hit the trench, it would kill everyone in a 20-meter radius just by the force of the blast. And when the British looked in, the dead were virtually unmarked. The phosphorus grenade was another matter. It's effective, but to put it bluntly, pretty evil. I've seen in battle what these do as an ops medic, and the effect is not pretty. The shrapnel sticks to flesh and burns its way into the body. The only way to remove these bits is to use a knife or a bayonet to prise it away from the skin or from inside the body. But this attack fizzled out. Private James Street fell as a round passed through his leg. Two men went to his aid and managed to pull him to safety and stem the bleeding. Private Hall was then hit in the small of the back and lay moaning. Two others rushed out to pull him to safety as well. The platoon was now desperately short of ammunition. Private Ellingsworth volunteered to head off to retrieve Hall's machine gun belt, which lay in the open, but was shot through the neck by a sniper. The bullet broke his neck and Sergeant Aird said, he was dead before he hit the ground. Both Alpha and Bravo companies pressed on. It was now past ten in the morning. Helicopters were flying around, delivering ammunition and kazabacking. Runners were trying to bring the ammo to the forward positions and to remove both British and Argentinian wounded. They were being treated at an unused refrigeration plant at Ajax Bay. Reporters were also there, and it's safe to say that they believed everything was in chaos. That's battle for you. It's organized chaos. Artillery fire was landing accurately around the British as the spotters on the hills found their range and the machine gun fire from Bocker Hill near the house was deadly. Four men of fire platoon were pinned down near this hill and they were almost out of ammunition. The Argentinians were flush with rounds. They could fire their machine guns at will. Mortar ammunition had run out altogether for the British here while behind Alpha and Bravo companies, Delta was still mopping up. The British artillery did begin to fire once more as their men retreated, creating a safe bombardment zone. The British guns were firing almost continuously. Their cartridge cases began to pile up inside the camouflage netting, but it was very difficult keeping all three guns in action. 
The soft ground caused the trails to bury themselves almost to the gunners' seats. The Harriers had appeared overhead, supporting the artillery and mortars, and the British momentum began to build again. They moved away down the spine of the isthmus, providing support for Bravo Company. At last, they reached a position from where they could engage the Argentinian strong point at a range of around 1,500 yards. Here is where the Milan missile began to really come into its own once more. Delta Company was ordered to bypass Bravo along the shore on the west side of Boca House. Then, covered by Bravo Company fire, Delta rose from the shore at 11 a.m. and scrambled up the hillside, peppering the Argentinian trenches with machine guns. Slowly, the enemy began to emerge from their bunkers and surrender. Eventually, 97 were counted. B Company received orders to press onto Goose Green itself in support of C Company, but Major Farah Hockley said it was impossible. He'd taken too many casualties. Also, he was holding Darwin Hill against possible counterattack. Charlie Company, along with Farah Hockley's three platoon, began to head around the hill while a patrol was sent into Darwin to check on the civilians. A few defenders there were cleared. Tupera had now managed to crack the outer shell of the Argentinian resistance, but had to turn to the considerable defences at Goose Green itself. Facing the barriers were Argentinians of the main force inside well-constructed bunkers near the airfield. Charlie Company was ordered to head down the eastern coast while Delta and Bravo Companies moved across the isthmus from the west. Charlie Company found themselves facing a terrifying combination of artillery, mortar, machine gun and even anti-aircraft fire as they advanced on Goose Green's schoolhouse. As the South Africans found out far away in a war in Angola, one of the more effective weapons against ground troops were the anti-aircraft guns, which could swivel horizontally. These AA guns were based on the eastern tip of Goose Green, and some were radar-controlled. As soon as the paras tried to move over the ridge crest that separated them from the Argentinians, the AA guns would overwhelm them with a volume of fire. Commander Chris Keeble found himself exposed on this ridge as the AA fire swept across the gorse and peat, throwing rocks and mud high in the air, and he thought he was a goner, particularly after his smock became entangled in a cattle fence. But he survived. Bravo Company was now moving around the west of the airfield in a wide arc, approaching Goose Green from the southwest. Charlie and Delta Companies joined up for a combined direct assault on the schoolhouse. Moments later, the British say a white flag was waved from the enemy position. It was then that an incident took place which is disputed so I'll provide the two versions and leave you to make up your own mind. With the schoolhouse surrounded, the British were obviously in the ascendancy and believed the Argentinians would surrender. The Argentinians say that a British platoon commander called Lieutenant James Barry had radioed the company command and asked for permission to head to the schoolhouse to negotiate surrender. The British stopped firing and Barry and two NCOs went forward, holding their firearms over their heads. The Argentinian commander said later that his men never waved a white flag, or if they did, he didn't see it. How Barry and the NCOs would even think of approaching the schoolhouse without seeing such a signal is somewhat unlikely, but the Argentinians have stuck to their story. Barry was met by 2nd Lieutenant Gomez Centurion, who spoke perfect English. His father had been military attaché in Washington. Centurion says he thought the British were coming forward to surrender themselves, having been at the receiving end of a severe barrage, and that his men did not wave any white flag. Gomez Centurion refused to surrender, and Barry and the two NCOs turned and walked back to their lines. 
Now the Argentinians say a twitchy British machine gunner immediately opened fire from the high ground near Darwin Hill, wounding soldiers. These gunners were at an extreme range and couldn't see what was happening. Then the Argentinians, in fury, opened fire at Barry and the two NCOs, killing all three as they climbed a nearby fence. The British say that as Barry walked forward, having spotted the white flag, he was shot out of hand. The effect of either story led to a no-prisoner logic by two para, at least for the next few minutes. They were so furious, they unleashed 66mm rockets, Carl Gustav rounds and machine gun fire into the school building. It burst into flame, killing many inside. Two para was now closing in around Goose Green. Mortars were brought up behind Darwin Hill and the enemy's 20mm anti-aircraft guns on the airfield were all hit. Delta Company began to reorganize following the schoolhouse incident and survived a Bukhara attack. Three Harriers swooped in moments later and hit the airfield's radar-controlled cannon and guns with cluster bombs. By now, it was an hour before last light, around 4pm, when the sun suddenly broke through the clouds and the Argentinian fire began to slacken. Then all firing ceased as darkness closed in. The British had taken many prisoners, many wounded. Still, two para faced a terrible direct assault on Goose Green across a minefield. Things didn't look good for the morrow despite their victories. Keeble ordered the rifle companies back from dead ground and off the ridgeline overlooking Goose Green, and then the men lay on the hillside in silence. Keeble radioed Brigadier Julian Thompson, 3 Brigade Commander for reinforcements, Juliet Company from 42 Commando, they could take up position covering the southern approach to Goose Green. Because they'd lost so many men, Keeble asked if the settlement could be flattened by the artillery the next morning. He'd stopped thinking about civilians, stopped thinking about ensuring limited destruction. Now he wanted victory at all costs. His men had suffered enough. Affirmative, said Brigadier Thompson. Keeble then asked for three more guns and 2,000 rounds of ammunition, six more mortars and their bombs. Keeble said he also wanted the Harriers to demonstrate their firepower by bombing the settlement at 0900 the next day. It was going to be a bloody end if they went ahead. Both sides had fought themselves to a standstill and now had to think about the next moves, and it was a restless night. Here and there explosions went off, and the next morning cows' carcasses could be seen strewn around. They had wandered into the minefield. As dawn broke, the plan to overrun Goose Green began, but first a last chance to end things without more blood being shed. Spanish-speaking Rod Bell, who we met in an earlier episode, selected two Argentinian NCOs to walk with him to the ridgeline carrying a white flag. They had a letter demanding the Argentinian surrender, and then the two walked alone down to the settlement. Almost immediately, they walked back, saying the commander agreed to a meeting. At 8.30, representatives of the two sides gathered. The civilian's safety was a matter of priority, and the Argentinians requested an honourable surrender, to which the British agreed. Then it was over. As the Argentinians emerged from their hiding places, the British stood and watched, aghast. They had expected fewer than a 100 men to walk out of Goose Green, but 150 moved out, and formed up in a hollow square just beyond the perimeter. The Argentinians sang their national anthem, then threw down their weapons, weeping. The British saw that most of these men were wearing Air Force uniforms, so where was the infantry? 
Astounded, they then saw a great column of men emerge from Goose Green, marching towards them in three ranks. More than 900 Argentinians were in this group, led by Lieutenant Colonel Italo Pioggi. The British had defeated an entrenched enemy with around a third of the number of soldiers, breaking one of the main rules in attacking a strong defensive position. The narrative of the time back in 1982 was that these Argentinians were fighting half-heartedly, which is an insult both to the Argentinians and the British paras. It was a full-blown bloody battle by two sets of soldiers intent on victory. Two para buried 50 Argentinian dead and took 1,200 prisoners. In all, the British had lost 17 men killed, 35 wounded. Things could have been far, far worse. Three commander brigades' ignorance of enemy strength was something that continues to cause the veterans of this war to fume. London and the Ministry of Defence had General Menendez's full order of battle, but did not ensure that Brigadier Thompson received these details. A terrible indictment of the leadership of that country and its military top brass. The soldiers fought bravely, but many of these deaths could have been avoided on both sides had the blueprints been sent to Thompson. While the English press trumpeted this victory, military experts were shaking their heads at the ramshackle intelligence and command communication. They were very, very lucky that the British professional soldier is so well trained and motivated or things at Darwin and Goose Green could have ended in a political disaster for Margaret Thatcher. Next episode, we'll cover the attack on Mount Kent, which overlooks Stanley, and the loss of another British ship, HMS Fitzroy. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.